Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. Caligula, the depraved and sadistic Roman emperor, was one of the most reviled figures of antiquity. Allegations of incest, murder, more bizarrely, the promotion of his beloved horse to consul, still linger in the popular culture today. Or was he really the deranged tyrant we learnt about in history class? Or was there another side to him? In this episode, I will explore the truth of the man behind the legend. Germany, AD 14. An insurrection is underway. No longer bound by loyalty to the recently deceased Caesar Augustus, troops are in open revolt against his successor, Tiberius. They demand the same rights as the Praetorian Guard, pensions and 16-year service limits, but their appeals have fallen upon deaf ears. The Emperor recalls his top general, Germanicus Caesar, to quell the revolt. But as he arrives in Germany, the general is fated as a hero. He's the one man the men trust, the Julius Caesar of their generation. The soldiers implore him to march on Rome and to seize power. Germanicus has an uneasy relationship with Tiberius. Officially, he's the emperor's adopted son and heir. But in reality, the relationship was thrust upon Tiberius by Augustus as a condition of his accession to the de facto throne. Germanicus could use his troops to accelerate his rise and dispatch the dour figure, already failing to hold the empire together. The general, though, has other ideas. In an act of theatre, he plunges his own sword towards his chest and says he would rather die than be disloyal to the emperor. The mutineers stop him from taking his own life. But the discontent continues. Fearing for the safety of his family, Germanicus orders his pregnant wife and young son Gaius to leave the camp. Whether it was a calculated move or one driven by genuine emotion, Germanicus's plan works. Even the most steadfast rebels are gripped by shame when they see the toddler Gaius and his mother fleeing to seek sanctuary in barbarian lands. They've watched the toddler grow up in camp. His mother even dressed him in a mini Roman soldier's outfit, complete with tiny Caligae soldier's boots. The legions affectionately call him Caligula, or Little Boots. The mutineers agree to return to duty, but only if Germanicus keeps the boy Caligula, the Roman army's equivalent of a soccer mascot or ball boy, in the camp. He agrees 
and Tiberius survives his first great challenge. Now you might think Tiberius would be eternally grateful. After all, Germanicus had saved his bacon. But you'd be underestimating the paranoid and vicious nature of the man. Despite his heirs' death-defying act of loyalty, the one group of people Tiberius feared more than his enemies were those who professed to love him. The emperor was a sociopath, incapable of forming lasting human attachments. Loyal allies, like Germanicus, were simply too good to be true. As a reward for his troubles, Germanicus was kept well away from Rome and was dispatched to the Eastern Empire. Some years later, he died suddenly at the age of 33. Accounts of his demise vary, but rumours of black magic and poisoning abound. Regardless of the cause of death, his wife, Agrippina, granddaughter of Augustus, was convinced that jealous Tiberius was to blame. She returned to Rome and made sure that anyone and everyone knew the emperor had killed her husband. Eager to ensure the birthright of her sons as eventual heirs of Augustus, Agrippina started a whispering campaign against the emperor. It did not end well. Despite having vacated his responsibilities in Rome and taken up residence on the Isle of Capri, Tiberius's henchman, Sejanus, convinced the aging emperor to take action against Agrippina. She was captured and starved to death. One of her sons was murdered. The other possibly died of poisoning. But her third son, Gaius or Caligula, described as frail and possibly epileptic, was spared. He was summoned to Capri and kept as a house guest come prisoner in the emperor's home. Now you might think Caligula had hit the jackpot, plucked from relative obscurity by the emperor, who also happened to be his great uncle, to live a lavish lifestyle in the imperial home. But Tiberius's house was far from serene and more like a house of horrors. Caligula, still in his teens, was now a prisoner in the household where Tiberius was said to molest and murder young boys in sadistic sexual orgies. It's reasonable to assume Caligula was at least privy to, if not willingly or otherwise, involved in these activities, all while being forced to offer deference to a tyrant who had murdered his entire family. The relationship was akin to one between a master and an abused dog. Sources say Tiberius delighted in encouraging his nephew's worst tendencies while ensuring he kept him on a tight leash. Caligula later claimed that one night he crept into Tiberius' room while he was sleeping with a dagger and had the opportunity to kill him. Caligula didn't bottle it out of fear of the repercussions. The point of the story was to demonstrate his power. Tiberius lived simply because Caligula allowed him to. In AD 37, Tiberius died. He was an old man in poor health, but inevitably, rumours of an assassination by smothering or poison arose. Various individuals, including Caligula, were cited as possible assassins. Had someone killed him, it would have provoked the obvious question, why did it take you so long? In actuality, it's likely the empress simply died of old age. But his will was unambiguous. Caligula was to assume the role long promised to his father as his heir. 
Only there was one caveat. He had to share the job with Tiberius's biological grandson, Gemellus. Regardless of Tiberius's desire, the Senate had ideas of its own. Augustus was a dictator who had ended the years of the Republic. Tiberius, his successor, had effectively thrown the towel in and left Rome in the hands of the Senate. With him out of the picture, plans were made to restore the ancient Republic. However, the public took the matter into their own hands. Caligula was the antithesis of the distant despot Tiberius. He was young, he loved a spotlight, and he had a sense of humour, albeit a dark one. Above all, no one had suffered as much hardship under the former ruler as the 24-year-old son of the much-loved Germanicus. He was the Shirley Temple of his era. The child star had come of age. The Roman mob demanded Caligula be installed as emperor. He didn't need to be asked twice, and immediately returned to Rome, where he took the unusual step of having Tiberius's will nullified. He argued that his predecessor was not of sound mind when he wrote it. No one with his wits about him would have selected the boy Gemellus as a co-ruler. The Senate concurred, and Caligula assumed power. During his first six months in office, Caligula won the hearts of the empire. The Roman legions got their long-sought pay rise, the public were entertained with extravagant gladiatorial events, and the finest architects in the empire were set to work on projects to raise the eternal city from the shadow of the much grander Egyptian empire. Even the die-hard republicans warmed to the young emperor as he offered a general amnesty to the numerous political prisoners chained up during his great-uncle's reign. People stopped talking about Julius Caesar and Augustus. The new kid on the block was, according to Philo, admired across the world, from the rising to the setting of the sun. Caligula was viewed as a generous individual as he splashed the cash. What few people realise was the money he spent was Tiberius's, and many of the recipients of his lavish gifts were benefactors named in the late emperor's will. Since the will was never published, Caligula could have held on to the money himself. But politically, it made sense for him to garner support from his predecessor's allies, buying them off with money that in reality was rightfully theirs. The early sense of euphoria turned to panic seven months into his reign, when Caligula became seriously ill. The exact nature of the ailment is unknown, but in an era when poison was passed around like coffee, it's possible he suspected he was the victim of some intrigue. Either way, once recovered, the playboy suddenly took on a different demeanour. Not long after his recovery, he ordered the execution of his proposed co-ruler, Gemellus. Murdering rivals is a great way to get yourself portrayed as a tyrant or even a madman, but in the context of his day, the move was an unsurprising political manoeuvre. Few people call Elizabeth I of England a lunatic, even though she slew her cousin in similar circumstances. Elizabeth as queen had half a millennia of royal tradition to give her credibility, and yet she felt challenged. Caligula had no such standing. Half of Rome wanted him and any other dictator dispatched so they could restore the republic. The other half 
weighed the claims of every general and distant relation of his predecessors to the title of Caesar. His position was at best precarious, and Gemellus was his most obvious threat. Gemellus allegedly made the crucial mistake of making contingency plans with the Praetorian prefect Macro for a transfer of power in the event of Caligula's death. It's the kind of step any reasonable politician would take when the head of state is seemingly on his last legs. But Caligula didn't see it that way. Worse still, Gemellus was found with a vial of cough medicine that smelled suspiciously like poison. For his part, Macro was forced to kill himself for his role in the supposed conspiracy. It was a move that would come back to haunt the emperor. Coming up, Caligula stirs up a hornet's nest in Jerusalem, and the Praetorian Guard seek revenge. Fascinating People, Fascinating Places presents 5 Amazing Facts Brought to you by Daniel Mainwaring, author of When Babel Floods and The Treacherous Exhibit. Caligula was born on the 31st of August. He shares his birthday with movie star Richard Gere. The obelisk in St. Peter's Square is one of the most iconic sites in the Vatican. It originally stood in Egypt before Caligula shipped it to Rome. Despite being married four times and boasting numerous lovers, Caligula had no known children who lived past infancy. Caligula's horse, Incitatus, was never made into a consul, but the horse was often a guest at his many banquets. The anniversary of his death 24th of January is a date he shares with Winston Churchill and L. Ron Hubbard. In AD 38, a tragedy set in motion a sequence of events that would lead to Caligula's downfall. His youngest sister, Julia Drusilla, died. He was particularly fond of her, even creepily suggesting she was like a wife to him. During her long illness, her devoted brother refused to leave her bedside. When she died, Caligula went into an extended period of mourning. He wasn't best pleased to learn that her widowed husband, Lepidus, been having an affair with not one, but two of his other siblings. Worse still, rumours suggested the trio were planning a coup, with Lepidus set to marry his sister Agrippina and assume control of Rome. We don't know if evidence of the coup and the affairs was real or manufactured, but Agrippina developed a reputation as a Machiavellian schemer 
In later years, she unsuccessfully tried to seduce the future Emperor Galba before his mother-in-law intervened. She also married her uncle, the future Emperor Claudius, before poisoning him so her son Nero could replace him. So it's in keeping with what we know about her character to suggest the plot was real. Lepidus was swiftly executed, the shamed sisters sent into exile. Caligula's grandmother was enraged by the emperor's action. This led to a falling out with her grandson and her own death through either murder or suicide. Caligula had quickly polished off most of the family members who'd survived Tiberius's purges. But one close relative remained in Rome, his uncle Claudius. On paper, this seems like a strange move. As a more senior and well-respected member of the extended family, Claudius was an obvious rival to Caligula. But the emperor didn't see it that way. His uncle had a limp and was partially deaf. Caligula cruelly ridiculed his disabilities and regarded him as nothing more than an amusement. In a cruel twist of irony, Caligula was following Tiberius' example and keeping alive his eventual replacement. Some historians have cited the banishment of his sister and death of his grandmother as evidence of Caligula's supposed disdain for the Julian clan. But his actions don't back up this theory. He travelled east and conducted an extensive search for the remains of his mother and brother before giving them a proper burial in Rome. He also spent a small fortune building the Temple of Augustus. If he harboured feelings of resentment to his family, he certainly disguised those feelings in public. The middle period of his reign is the era that features some of the most salacious stories. Cassius Dio tells us that on one occasion, aboard Caligula, instructed his guards to throw members of the audience into the arena to be attacked by lions. The same writer claims he had an incestuous affair with his sister Agrippina. The problem with these stories is twofold. Firstly, Dio wasn't even born until a century after Caligula's death. Secondly, Dio was writing for the audience of his time, an era when the Julian faction, of which Caligula was a part, was not held in high esteem. His readers enjoyed salacious stories, full of intrigue and scandal. The emphasis was on attracting a big readership, rather than necessarily checking his facts. In today's terms, it would be a bit like learning about Queen Victoria by reading a scandalous expose in the National Enquirer. The few surviving contemporary sources from Caligula's era make no mention of his incestuous affair or the incident at the arena. Bear in mind, these records were produced by men such as Philo, people repulsed by the emperor, who would have no interest in covering up his misdemeanors. Another allegation from this era was that he wanted to make his horse into a consul. Few written records from this time survive, although there are reliable records detailing consuls and senators. Caligula's horse is not among them. What is known is that Caligula had a wicked, and some may say sadistic, sense of humour. As a wind-up merchant, could he have dropped hints that his horse could do a better job than the senator's? Absolutely. And arguably, he had a point. But when the joke evolves into a historical fact, 
we go from seeing him as a wise guy, troublemaker, into someone with serious mental health issues. In contrast to these dubious stories, his aborted invasion of Britain is known to have occurred. Caligula gathered a large force in Gaul, modern-day France, and began the short journey across the Channel to England, before turning around midway and coming back to France. When he did so, he declared war on Neptune and the sea. The spoils of war for his weary soldiers were seashells. The primary sources for this story are Suetonius and Cassius Dio. The former wasn't even born until after Nero's assassination, the latter more than a century after Caligula died. Historians are divided on the specifics of the story. Some take it literally, others see seashells as a euphemism for female genitalia, perhaps suggesting the men ravaged the locals. Others suggest his invasion plan was scuppered by a mutiny. Aside from the debacle of the invasion of Britain, in AD 40, Caligula did make a bold and unexpected political move. He invited Ptolemy, king of the Roman client state Mauritania, to visit Rome. Like any important dignitary, Ptolemy was welcomed with the pomp and ceremony a man of his status would expect. But despite appearances, there was a turbulent history that tied the two men. Ptolemy was the grandson of Cleopatra and Mark Antony, the Roman general who fought Augustus in a civil war for control of Rome. Antony lost, and Ptolemy's realm, previously dominated by his lover Cleopatra, became little more than a puppet state under the influence of Augustus. Three generations later, Caligula was shocked to see the upstart king of Mauritania flaunting his wealth in Rome. Ptolemy's visit coincided with a time of famine and recession. The money inherited from Tiberius had been squandered. The city's coffers were empty. Caligula was penny-pinching while Ptolemy was living the high life. It's even said Caligula was envious of the king's extravagant purple cloak. Envious side, Ptolemy presented another problem for the emperor. With his wealth and armies, not to mention his paternal connection to Roman rule, he was an ideal ally for someone planning a coup. His fate was inevitable. Caligula had the visiting monarch executed and seized his territory. Stories describing Caligula's erratic behaviour increased exponentially at this time. One of his biggest missteps was declaring himself to be a living god. In today's world, such a claim would certainly raise a few eyebrows, but you only have to look at North Korea and Kim Il-sung for a modern-day president-slash-deity. Augustus had been deified in death. Caligula didn't feel it was much of a stretch to proclaim himself as a god while still alive. After all, that's what rulers did in the East. It was also said he despised the nickname Caligula. Who could blame him? The most powerful man in the world. And people called him baby names. How better to restore some credibility to declare himself as the human incarnation of Jupiter, king of the gods. Caligula's newly found godly status created consternation among the Jewish community in the empire. This came to his attention when an altar built to honour him by pagans was destroyed by an angry Jewish mob. Caligula decided to double down 
and proposed installing a statue of himself in the Jewish Holy of Holies, the Temple in Jerusalem. To make things easier, King Herod Agrippa II, the villain of the New Testament, was his best mate. But even Herod had other ideas. He had a fragile grip on power, and he implored Caligula to cancel the project. He claimed falsely the Jews frequently made offerings to Caligula and the other Roman gods, so there was no need for a statue. While this was unfolding, anti-Semitic riots had broken out in Alexandria. A delegation of prominent Jews led by Philo decided to travel to Rome, where they hoped to smooth things over with Caligula. The gist of their argument was simple. We pay our taxes. We follow your laws. The one thing we ask for in return is for you to respect our religious tradition. The jealous God of Scripture had made it abundantly clear. There was no room for idols. There was but one God. Now to any neutral, this request may seem pretty reasonable. Many prior and future Roman rulers allowed the Jews to conduct their worship without interference. But from Caligula's point of view, their request was absurd. He was a god. People from every other nation accepted him as such, at least to his face. If nothing else, why couldn't the Jews worship him along with their own gods? After all, the pagans had no problem sharing gods. Fortunately for Philo, Caligula resisted the urge to punish his impertinence. Indeed, he said he actually felt sorry for the delegation because of their ignorance. Nonetheless, he was eager to press ahead with the installation of his golden statue in the temple. The Romans on the ground there realized this was a terrible idea likely to incite violence, and they manufactured a series of reasons to delay the installation. Caligula would not live to see it built. Coming up, Caligula sets his sights on Egypt. In AD 41, Caligula finally bit off more than he could chew. Having given up his idea of trying to gentrify Rome, he announced his intention to move his palace to Alexandria in Egypt. This was not a wise move. The last Roman ruler to move to Egypt was Mark Antony. His move led to civil war and his eventual death. The Romans had conquered the Egyptians, and few senators were willing to tolerate taking orders from Alexandria. Some historians have suggested Caligula's desire to move to Egypt was based on the fact that the North Africans were more open to the notion of a living god. Perhaps he was eager to sample the kind of luxurious lifestyle Ptolemy had enjoyed. Either way, his proposal caused alarm in Rome. Caligula was already at odds with the Senate over the economy, his attempt to provoke violence in Jerusalem, and of course the fact he insisted on carrying on affairs with their wives. His most outspoken critic was Seneca. He was on the chopping block for repeatedly criticising the emperor. He also dared to deliver speeches 
in an oratory style that was superior to Caligula's. This was a tough pill for the self-described actor in the palace to swallow. The dissident senators knew it was only a matter of time before Caligula had them executed. They had to strike first. But killing him wasn't a problem, it was the aftermath they feared. Generations earlier, Brutus and Cassius had slaughtered Julius Caesar, only to be hunted down and killed by mobs of angry civilians and the Roman army. If the Senate were going to act against Caligula, they needed some muscle to ensure a smooth succession plan. Despite his erratic behaviour, his own troops, the German guard, were fiercely loyal to the emperor. In contrast, the Praetorian guards were itching for a fight. They wanted to avenge their leader Macro, who had been executed in Caligula's first wave of violence. The two groups, aided by some disgruntled courtiers, hatched a plan to rid themselves of the tyrant. The emperor was surprised and unprotected when they struck. He was chatting with some young actors after rehearsing a play when the conspirators burst in. Reports suggest, as with Julius Caesar, Caligula was stabbed 30 times before succumbing to his wounds. Upon hearing about the attack, his German guard went on a bloody rampage, indiscriminately attacking the guilty and the innocent as they sought to avenge their leader's murder. This counter-revolution quickly died down, and senators took steps to revive the Republic. The Praetorian Guard, though, moved quickly, and publicly declared Claudius as the unlikely new emperor. Caligula's turbulent reign lasted just four years. That's a fraction of the time his predecessors ruled Rome, but much longer than many of his successors. His legacy included some significant infrastructure upgrades, and he held on to his lands. But his accomplishments were much less than other successful, but less celebrated emperors, such as Trajan and Antoninus Pius. Was Caligula insane? Possibly. Was he an effective ruler? Clearly not. Is he memorable? Absolutely. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.